Hey guys, uh, sorry we're starting a tiny bit late. I just lost track of a time. Make sure you ask your questions for our special guest today, Wife of Purpose, in the chat. We're not doing such a news-heavy um, podcast today because we're all just a bit kind of fed up of the news right now. <laughs> it's a bit repetitive. Um, so I just say, hello, Wife of Purpose. Maybe you can give us quite a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Hi. Um, yeah, so I am Wife of Purpose on Twitter, and I have a YouTube channel under the same name. And I'm kind of, I guess I'm uh, most well known for the White Baby Challenge, um, which was a joke I made on Twitter earlier this year that kind of ended me up getting it, um, ended up getting me in the international press as a racist because I suggested white people should have babies. So that's kind of what I'm known for. But um, really, I'm a mother of six, a homeschooling mom of six, and uh, uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> that's pretty much <laughs> homeschooling mom of six. Like encompasses ninety nine percent of the reality of my existence because that's what I do most of the time. Yeah, I think that you you're kind of a bit of a rarity nowadays. Um, it must be only about one percent of white. Western women who have uh, six babies nowadays, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it depends on where I live, but, you know, I've lived in California, Utah, and then some other places. Um, and Utah, it's still pretty common. So we don't get too many looks in the stores, although we still will get comments every now and again. In California, people will straight up confront my family and yell at us about how many children we have. Um, and most other places that we go in the US, particularly with aging populations, aging white populations, um, we are kind of, at first we're stared at almost like a circus act, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe those are all your children. And then like people will actually tear up um, and, you know, start telling us their life story about how they wish they'd had more children or their mother had had six children, but they only had one and they regret it and, and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to be the mother of a large family these days, particularly a large white family. Sounds like people have a very emotional response to it for some reason, but I can't, I don't see people having a very emotional response to, uh, for example, the Muslim women in London who will have like six little <laughs> ducklings trailing along behind them. No one really responds to that, do they? So it's interesting. Do you have anything to say on this, Mark? Or maybe you have some questions for uh, Wife of Purpose? Yeah. It's, it's a really good thing that you're on the show because obviously we relentlessly push the idea of the traditional family. And I, I personally, you know, in my book, uh, Fall of Western Man, I said that I think the cornerstone of Western society, the very bedrock of what we're all trying to preserve is actually the nuclear family. Without the nuclear family, we're done for. And I believe that so as an evolutionary um, issue you know when we when we evolved on the edge of ice sheets tens of thousands of years ago there was this massive pressure towards monogamy families staying with your wife having children bringing those children up properly and that's what formed our communities and obviously communities led to nations which led to civilizations and my question for you really is in today's world where you see so many women who measure their success 
on issues such as their career. And when I say career, I don't mean anything meaningful. You know, these women aren't creating light speed drives that are taking us to other worlds or allowing us to conquer the, the galaxy. These women are simply working for soulless corporations. So really they're mortgaging their life, not for something that will change humanity, but for something that really might buy the shareholders a couple of extra glasses of champagne at the meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really see that as a positive. And the other thing that they sort of chase is this soulless life of selfies, partying, materialism, hedonism, you know, the things pushed by people like the Kardashians, people like, you know, these soulless, vacuous celebrities who have pushed this selfie culture. And wealth is measured in those terms today. And it's strictly measured in those terms. Yet I've viewed a few of your videos. I've done a little bit of research on you today. And you seem to be far richer than any of those people, but richer in a way that can't be quantified monetarily. And I think it'd be really good if you could let our audience know how, you know, you look like a very happy person. You always look so happy. You always look so full of life. And when you see these women pouting and like trying to make out that they're, they're you know, the selfies or the pictures of their meals are like, you know, so wonderful. They don't actually look anywhere near as happy as you. And I think it's really important, if you could, just to articulate the the benefits of spiritual wealth that comes from the family, that comes from children, because that's something that people don't seem to understand. And when you told that really interesting intro there about how people look at you, they well up, they wish they'd have more children. My big worry, and we laugh at these women, we do laugh at them when you see some like 45-year-old, you know, podgy, um, childless woman in the Daily Mail who's crying and saying, oh, I wish I'd had kids, but it's all gone wrong, and maybe I shouldn't have worked so hard for that promotion because now I'm 45, no man wants to know me, and I haven't got kids. But you're the opposite of that. You're pushing such a vital vital thing for our people it's it's a real pleasure to have you on but you know could you sort of elaborate on that sort of spiritual wealth over material wealth oh yeah definitely um so that i mean that's why i got on twitter it's why i started my youtube channel i originally wasn't going to be talking about race realism or anything like that i was originally a, um, an anti-feminist advocate and the reason i was was because of that exact i'd had that experience with so many women so my family and i lived in northern california for 10 years and right above the San Francisco Bay Area, where a lot of the hippies of the 60s, 70s, and 80s had come, kind of gone to Berkeley, and they'd done that kind of hippie counterculture, progressive, liberal thing. And then they'd kind of moved further north of the Bay to retire when they were in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And so a lot of these women I would run into, and they had either no children or maybe one child that they managed to just barely scrape out at the age of 45. And they would see me with my children and my growing family, and, and they would tell me, I wish somebody had told me. I heard this over and over again. I wish somebody would tell me how much I was going to love motherhood because now I'm 45, I have one child, and I can't have any more. But if, I, if somebody had told me at 20 you know, how wonderful it was, I, you know, I would have had six. I would have had 10. And so that was a big part of my activism was trying to share with people that message because I, I wanted women to be able to avoid that because for us there is, there is a date stamp on it and you, you get into your 40s and you, you can't have you can't make that life if you haven't done it already and 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 women were being so lied to by the feminist agenda and and so yeah the wealth that I have I mean I, I daily am overwhelmed by by how much God has blessed me with my family and 
and you know I sit on the couch and I'm you know reading with my children or I'm doing math problems with my children and I my eyes will well up with tears because I'll think this is all I've ever wanted in my life it's so satisfying on a level that I cannot articulate to other people like it is so much better than shoe shopping it's so much better than that perfect selfie it's you know sitting there and, and watching my child struggle to read a word and then you know get the word and then get the word on the next sentence and giving them a high five and giving them a hug and and just it's it's literally indescribable so i i that's what i do with my social media accounts is try the best i can to kind of convey that message through Instagram, through Twitter, through YouTube, that this is satisfying on a level. It, it's almost as though if you don't have the children and the family, you know, you've never eaten real food. It's almost like we're all eating this fake stuff and then you finally get a taste of real food and you're finally nourished. It's like that, but for your soul. Um, it, it, like I said, it's indescribable. And, and I totally, we've gone through different periods of time in our lives as family, as a family when we've had very little money and very lean Christmases. And, and then we've had more money and, you know, we've gone up and down over the years and it, the money, you know, we look back and some of the times when we had very little money, when we were struggling to get by are some of the happiest memories we have. So it, it absolutely has nothing to do with material wealth. It has to do with my family and us being together. I was wondering if that's that's beautiful, so heartwarming, and you know it comes through on your Instagram and on your Twitter. What uh, could you give us some context, maybe for the listeners, uh, maybe who are not so familiar with you, what the Have White Babies Challenge was all about? Maybe you could give us like a sort of rundown of what happened and how it started, how it sort of cooled down, and what was the deal with that? Right. So, well, there was two instances that happened right next to each other chronologically. So back in March of 2017, um, I had uh, discovered this uh, rap artist um, that was a member of my church. And um, my church had actually begun have featuring him at church events. Um, and so they were promote, you know, they were kind of, you know, promoting him as a church community. And so my son was invited to one of these events and I'd looked up this rap artist and found that he promoted all of these things that were against the church, you know, um, you know, gay and lesbian things and immodesty and, and things like that. And so I'd written a blog post about that. And I, I had about five readers on my blog at the time just about his positions and how as a mother I found this to be very concerning as a mother and a member of this church community. And that was actually picked up, but somebody had tagged the this rap artist on Twitter and he'd found the blog and he had put it out to all his fans and then of course they started relentlessly harassing me. About two weeks later, and, and that started to die down, I didn't think that was going to be much of a thing, but then two weeks later, Steve Senator Steve King had had his famous comment that you can't rebuild your civilization with someone else's babies. And I thought that was like really brilliant and actually very true because as I pointed out before, if you take a lot of people from China and you put them in San Francisco, they build Chinatown, right? They, that's what happens worldwide when you shift cultures around, when you shift people around, they tip, tend to take their culture with them, particularly en masse. And so, um, demographics are your, your culture. And I thought it was brilliant. I was really excited that he'd actually said that. Um, out loud. And so I had just sent out a joking tweet because a lot of people know my background. A lot of my Twitter followers know I have a lot of white babies and that, that people, you know, will, um, 
harass me and troll me for the fact that, you know, I have six kids, six white kids and that sort of thing. So I sent out this kind of like half joking tweet saying, you know, um, Senator Steve King is right. And um, I challenge everybody to have, you know, make more white babies. I have, I have six, so match or beat me. And I had done a similar tweet back when I'd had my sixth child, which was the day after last Christmas. And one of those, I forget his name now, one of those university professors had come out at the time saying, oh, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. And I had tweeted out a picture of me in the hospital with my newborn and said, well, you know, not today, bucko, because here's number six, you know. And uh, that had gotten a lot of attention at the time as well. But so circle back around to March. And so it was, it was a tweet, it was a kind of a joking tweet somewhere in that vein. And um, it just got picked up like wildfire. I don't know, some journalist or somebody found it. And then what happened in the press was they conflated these two separate incidences of the white baby challenge and my complaining about the Mormon rap ghetto, ghetto thug culture artist and said that, and they started saying that I wanted to white people to have babies to outbreed black people, um, which was just absolutely ridiculous and nothing that I, anywhere close to anything I've ever said in these incidences were weeks apart. But anyways, that's how it hit the press when it went to BuzzFeed and the New York Post and the UK Daily Mail and, and all of that. And so that um, in the spring was, this spring was a whirlwind for my family because then all of a sudden we were doxxed, photos of our house showed up online, photos of my birth certificate, photos of my family, my sister, her children were being passed around, just like horrible things. People were trying to contact my family for press interviews. I had to, it was, you know, it was fairly embarrassing to have to go to my family and say like, look, the press is gonna contact you. You're gonna feel very flattered. They're gonna tell you wonderful things like, oh, I hear Ayla's being misrepresented in the media. I just wanna talk to you. And I said, they're going to twist it. Please don't talk to them. Um, had to tell my friends, please don't talk to the media. Um, had people calling my church leaders, you know, it anyways, ended up my family had to move out of the state we were living in to avoid um, death threats that we were getting. My For a while, my children couldn't play outside. I had people saying, I know where you live. Here's your address. I'm going to smash your kid's head in with a rock. You know, this sort of thing. And the irony of it, the, kind of <laughs> one of the things is that where we lived at the time, we lived at the in a little cul-de-sac in a little neighborhood that's in a farm community in a small town. And Right down the street at the end of the cul-de-sac was my was another family of five with five kids and they were my kids best friends They also happened to be mixed race. They were half Dominican and half white And I couldn't let my children out of the house to go walk to their best friend's house Because we were racist, right? So my, my, my little children had to stay at home and then not play with their half Dominican friends because suddenly we were racist because you know I, I had uh, pointed out that I don't like rap ghetto rap culture and and that uh, you know white people having babies was not you know was something we could talk about openly um yeah so that was kind of the fallout for us so we my family's had kind of a, a crazy year of, of reorganizing our lives but um as always god has blessed us immensely and richly through this he, he always has through trials and so i'm really grateful for that wow i'm really sorry to hear it was that bad. I had no idea it was that bad. I, I knew that the mainstream media were, you know, obviously misrepresenting you for the clicks. They're just clickbait nowadays. Um, I didn't know. That, oh, I, I suppose it's not surprising that you ended up getting all those threats. I mean, do you think that the mainstream media is at all uh, kind of liable for creating a lot of hatred and creating a lot of um, violence, basically, against conservatives? 
Oh yeah, definitely. And I pointed this out on Twitter when I would respond to, you know, articles like Salon that they would, they would tweet out about me and lie about me. And I would point out, not that they'd ever read my comments, but I at least would comment on the articles on Twitter and other places and say, look, you put my family in danger when you lie about me like this. This is unethical, it's immoral, and it's wrong. When you decide to spin a story and, and lie about a woman simply because it gets you clicks or it, it you know, it props up some narrative of, of these mad, you know, Nazis hiding out in America that you want to prop up. Like I have six children and, and you're putting their lives at risk when you do this kind of unethical journalism. So not that they care, but that is definitely something that I like to point out to them. And of course the trolls will come back at me and say, well, you're the one that put yourself out there. You're the one that's public about your beliefs. And I said, yes, I'm public about not liking rap music and thinking white people should exist. That's not a controversial belief. That is not a belief that should get my children death threats. So, you know, I mean, that, 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 and even if I had horrible beliefs that still should not get my children death threats. So, you know, um, particularly uh, the fact that they're lying though about it, you know, is just, it's completely unethical. And of course, if I, if I had a million dollars, if, you know, some, if some rich relative I don't know existed died tomorrow and left me their millions of dollars, one of the first things I would do would, would be to file a suit against those publications for lying about me and putting my family in jeopardy. One thing that really um, sort of struck me, actually, when I looked you up today, because uh, I do the little graphics for the, you know, the cover photos for the YouTube and I, for the YouTube channel, and I was looking for a picture of you, um, and I couldn't find a, you know, one that was sort of high res enough. So in the end, I just had to open one of your videos and pause it at the right moment, which took forever, because like obviously I'm looking, you know, <laughs> you're in the middle of speaking, so I have to make it so it look like you're smiling. But right. before that. The biggest pictures I found of you are on the Daily Mail site. And I read their article about you um, this afternoon. And one thing that really, really struck me was the fact that they attacked you so vehemently for having six children, being white, and taking pride in that. Now, this always really gets to me, you see, because I've seen other Daily Mail articles and indeed other articles by the UK press. And you'll see some white woman with seven or eight mixed race kids. You'll see large black families. And the tone that the papers write about these families is completely different to the one they approached you. And this really, really irks me, not just because I'm pro-white, but from a, a common sense perspective, because you're a loving mother. I take it you're, you're married to your, you're obviously married to the father of your children. Yes. There's one father involved. One father, you're married to him. You've got six children. You homeschool. You live in a happy home. It's a stable family and you're all white. So even if you took race out of the equation, what you're doing is, is really noble. You know, you're supporting your own family. Your husband's supporting your family. And it really annoys me to see that if it's the other way around, you know, if you've got a woman who's got, you know, six, seven, eight children by two or three fathers of all the kids are non-white and there's no dad in the house, it's always a cause celeb. These people are always the victims. You've always got to hold them up. And how are they going to afford Christmas? You know, almost as if we're all to fall to our knees and start, you know, dragging every last penny out of our pocket and throwing it into the gift box for them. But you're there as a traditional family providing for your family, schooling your family. You're not a drain on the state. In fact, you're standing on your own merits. And do you find it very hypocritical that when it's the other way around, 
families are held up as like a virtue, but actually the most virtuous families, such as your own, are the ones that are dragged down and spat upon by the media. Oh, yes, definitely. But I, I guess it shouldn't surprise me because I, you know, um, I actually found a lot of comfort during Donald Trump's um, election process because one of the things they always attacked him on was his family. And I think one of his strongest positions was his family. Now, granted, he's been married three times, which is not very traditional and not ideal. But even through his, you know, faults and his mistakes that he made, he took really great care of his kids and his kids have come out really well for the most part i mean you know they're they're not into drugs they're certainly not like the kardashians they're not like paris hilton they're not like some of these other people and to raise um kids nowadays in such a wealthy environment where you know they're having all this money all around them and all this um you know privilege really showered upon them for them not to go kind of nihilistic and get into drugs and alcohol and and things like that or even what we've seen um obama's children getting into um with you know um twerking and, and smoking pot and these sorts of things you know they, they would attack him on his family and i thought that's bizarre because his family is one of his strongest merits to me as it shows that he was a really consistent and present father and so yeah i think it's incredibly hypocritical that um you know a lot of from red ice radio pointed out when they interviewed me during the white baby challenge that you know if i had had of course if it had been mixed race babies if i had said i've had six mixed race babies you know to to combat racism you know uh, match or beat me i i would have been a hero they would have propped that tweet up as something wonderful um but white people white families were not allowed to be um proud of ourselves our heritage our ethnicity our ancestors and then also families like mine that are just you know really average and normal where like mom is staying home dad is working you know we have a really normal and healthy life are are now shown as something to be something abnormal and it's part of this this game the left is playing right now with kind of turning everything on its head and twisting everything around and saying that what is healthy and normal is abnormal and what is abnormal is healthy and normal right so on tv and everywhere else they want to put gay couples they want to put you know um single moms and they want to put you know all these different combinations that are not the normal natural state of being and they want to degrade what is the normal natural state of being as being somehow unhealthy and weird and and strange and you know to me like I have, I have six children. My great grandparents had six children. And back when my great grandparents had six children, that was entirely normal. In fact, that was actually a slightly small sized family for, for their, where they lived in America and, and the, the time period. And um, it's just incredible to me that over a couple of generations, we've gone to where we've completely turned things on its head. And now our family is shown as being some kind of abnormal, um, rare you know freak show yeah my irish grandma she had 10 kids so oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah um so i'm not sure are we getting any questions uh, from the chat mark at all i've got a had a couple of questions uh, I, I really want to say though can everyone make sure as always that you like the stream it's a big thing if you like the stream you know we've got a good number of viewers but make sure you smash that like button because we should at least have you know, you know, a half to two thirds of people who are in the stream, you know, watching, liking. So please do that because it helps the channel. But also make sure you ask those questions. We've had a couple of questions in. Um, I think, Stephen, didn't you have something to say before, though? Steve's got one more question yeah, for uh, Ayla. And then we'll move to uh, questions from the audience, if you want. Well, Ayla, a big uh, component of my channel and my presence publicly has been all about empathizing with children 
and the benefits of peaceful parenting and how values are transmitted through parenting. So I was wondering, you know, how, how are you going to be transmitting your values or, you know, virtuous values to your children? And then also the flip side, how are you going to explain these things like ghetto culture and demographics to your children? Well, uh, for the first part of your question, the traditional values, I think it's, it's simply by example. And so my husband and I just make sure that we are, you know, practicing what we preach to our kids. You know, when we put our kids to bed at night, my husband and I aren't going and like watching an R rated movie with like lots of cursing and this, <laughs> the, 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 the most, um, I guess spicy thing that we'll watch every now and again is uh, we'll watch Sargon of Akkad and he, he cusses quite a bit and uh, we'll tell it, we'll do it, you know, after our kids are in bed and we'll say, you know, it's like, it's a news program and we can, we just want to hear what he has to say, but those are, you know, words we don't use or something. I think that's as spicy as our family gets. Um, so we just, we just literally do um, commit ourselves to practicing what we preach to our children and not making a lot of exceptions and not making a lot of excuses. And so they see that this, this is a viable lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that they enjoy. And, um, and just really children are naturally inclined to want to do these traditional things. So my daughters, for example, we've never sat my daughters down and said, now you're going to want to cook and you're going to want to play with baby dolls. You know, no, you're going to want to wear pink dresses. Like we've never done that, but that's like their favorite things to do all day when they're playing, all they do is build, we, we call them the nests. They take blankets and build little nests and put baby dolls in them. And that's what they do, do it all over the house. And we'll have these little nests just like, you know, popping up all over our house. And uh, they like to, you know, if I'm in the kitchen for more than two minutes together, they're throwing their aprons on and they're running in after me, mommy, mommy, how can we help? You know, yesterday was Thanksgiving. They wanted to wash the potatoes and they call themselves mini mommy. That was a term that they came up with. Um, my oldest came up with on her own. She's mini mommy. Um, you know, if I'll say, oh, I need somebody to set the table and she'll say mini mommy to the rescue and she like runs and grabs the silver and so the thing is is that this for the most part is children's natural state of being and all we do I mean my husband and I is just create the space to allow that to flourish and part of that is keeping certain media and influences out of their life so obviously like I said before we're not sitting down and watching R-rated movies we don't have network television um, even when we do go on trips and we're in hotels or something we watch TV we make sure it's something like you know, a documentary about birds or something, you know, um, we turn, we mute the commercials, little practices like that. And then I've always just found being really straightforward and honest with children and simple works the best. So when they do come across something like some, you know, uh, ghetto culture and things like that, I've found at least for my children, they, they naturally find that to be strange. It, they don't go to school where it's promoted as cool and good. So when they do come across things that are degenerate or or that sort of thing, they naturally are kind of like, that's weird. And I just allow them to have their feelings. I don't tell them, no, it isn't weird. And you have to like, you know, you have to like it. You have to, to like uh, seeing a guy kiss another guy or whatever's happened, you know, whatever they've stumbled across. Um, I, I just say, yeah, you know, that is, you know, a way that we choose not to live our lives. And that's something we choose not to do. And then as they get older, especially I have a teenager. So as he's been moving into the teen years, my husband and I are just always available for his questions. So sometimes he'll just sit down and say, you know, I really want to understand why people do this or, or what the thinking is behind this. And, and we'll just have long conversations. And I think really for passing on virtues, values, traditions, and keeping out that stuff that you don't like, just being 
just talking with your children is amazing, particularly once they're teenagers. They actually will want to talk to you if you create a nice, welcoming, non-threatening space. And we just always let them know, our kids, you can come and talk to us about anything. Like, look, we're not going to get upset if you stumble across pornography or something like this happens. Just please be honest with us. We would love to talk with you about it. And just be willing to stay up until 3 in the morning if that's what it takes to listen to their hearts and help them understand what they're going through emotionally or physically or whatever whatever's happening. I actually um, wanted to ask you on a, on a different note, and it's quite a personal question, but it's um, – so I – from what I know about you, I think you converted to Mormonism as an adult. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to know, did you have these kind of traditional values before that and then convert? Or was it the other way around where um, Mormonism inspired traditional values? Or did both happen at the same time? Um, it's a little bit of 50-50. So um, I like to kind of say that I converted to Christianity less so than Mormonism. But um, it, was a, it was a conversion in my late 20s where before I had been kind of new agey and pagan and kind of like, you know, exploring what was out there. And um, I, I transitioned into Christianity. But all my life I've been really traditional in my values as far as the family unit went. And uh, I, I was progressive and liberal politically like as far as being very pro like I was very into like the Green Party and I was very into um you know Ralph Nader you know people like that for a while um and and that sort of thing but for personally personally my life I you know I just wanted to you know get married and have babies like was really on my heart like that's what I really wanted to do with my life and so I um that really kind of carried me through some of the more liberal indoctrination that I got in college and graduate school. And then um, once I did, you know, get married and start having those children, that really changes you dramatically. Like once you have children and a lot of people say this, but it really does like suddenly your, your, your whole mind shifts into like, you really see what's important and you really see what's important not only for your own family, but for society at large. And, and you understand things through a clearer lens and a less um, self-indulgent and self-obsessed lens. And it's really liberating in a lot of ways. But at any rate, that was then when I really got serious about Christianity. I really wanted to raise my children in a church, and I really wanted to raise them in a very traditional church, which is one of the things that led me to Mormonism, because at the time, the Mormons were pretty much the most traditional Christian um, faith you know, in America that, that you could be part of. But at any rate, so I did have a lot of those um, characteristics of wanting to be mom, wanting to wanting to homeschool, wanting to have a large family, those sorts of things. But then also when I did become a Christian, that um, being obedient to those um, principles and those ideas that are found in Christianity also led me to deeper understanding about why traditions were important. And, you know, it was kind of kind of snowballed from there as well. So I just say it's a it's a little bit 50-50. And if people want to know more, I have, um, I think, about four or five videos on my channel. Some of the first videos I ever did were about my transition from being liberal and kind of in the new age paganism and then, you know, coming into um, traditional thought. And so I, I go into it in great detail there. Excellent. Well, we've actually got some really, really good uh, questions coming in. And this one can go to the whole panel, actually. You know, obviously, I'd like you to start, Ayla, as you're the uh, super mum here today. Um, but this is, a, this is a question I actually get seen raised a lot. 
What's your stance on corporal punishment, i.e. spanking, as a form of discipline and correction? Because it's very common in the South, in the USA. Oh, sometimes I think I just, that's such a hot topic. That's kind of like, should I even touch it? I went into parenting being anti-spanking, incredibly anti-spanking. Now, six children later, 15 years into parenting, I have to say, I do believe that sometimes there's a time and a place. Although I do believe a lot of times it's overused and used incorrectly. And of course, if ever used out of anger, that is entirely in an incorrect manner. Um, and it depends also on the child. There's some children, if you ever were to spank them once, their whole inner emotional selves would crumble. And there's children that you could spank and they'd laugh at you. So knowing your children incredibly well is a huge part of that. So I don't have a solid answer one way or the, or the other. Do I think it should be completely outlawed and never, ever, ever considered as a disciplinary strategy? No. But do I think it's something that people ought to be like smacking their kids on the butt all the time? No. Now, there's actually a really great documentary that if anybody can get a hold of called The Secret Life of the Amish. And it was done by the BBC probably about 10 years ago where they went and actually an Amish family agreed to be filmed. And they showed like very detailed the Amish life. And the Amish mother in that spoke about spanking, which is part of Amish culture. And the way she spoke about it, I think is um really she really um she does a much better job than i can but she really gave a, a really great reason as to why the amish sometimes use spanking and how they do it and again never never out of anger um so yeah that'll be my <laughs> that'll be my two cents on the the subject no matter what i say either way i know people are going to be really upset <laughs> <laughs> uh regarding the amish um there's a guy who lived with him for a bit and he said that one of their uh, punishments that they would give to their children is that they wouldn't let them go to work with the big boys, basically. So if it was a boy, they wouldn't let them go to work with the men. Mm. And they'd say, no, you've got to stay home with the women today because uh, you've been bad. So <laughs> it's interesting reverse psychology, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I could follow up. I think, I think something that... Um, Plague's parents, or, or the parents don't know how to deal with oftentimes, is uncertainty and not having clarity on the outcome or the resolution of conflicts in the home. And they use spanking to close that down and to not have to deal with their own feelings of uncertainty. And it's a way of sort of exerting control in the home. So I think it's really important for parents to face their uncertainty so that they can guide their own children through similar uncertainty when that comes up for them. And I guess that gets into self-knowledge and that gets into my point of view. But I think it's really important to reason people through everything and where you can't reason through something yourself, you've just got to sit with your own inability to resolve things. And we all have limits as people, we all have shortcomings. And the way you handle that in the home is really instructive for the children. And they're going to be out in the marketplace as adults and they're gonna come into times where they face their own natural limits as people. And what they resort to in those moments is gonna determine whether they have success in life or whether they're failures, so. Well, since we're all giving our opinion, I'll give my, my quick opinion on spanking, which is I, I just don't think we have good enough um, scientific research on whether this is of benefit to children or not. So I'm agnostic on it. You know, maybe it has 
maybe it has horrible impact maybe it has no impact maybe it has a positive impact i don't know because we actually don't have enough scientific research to to know that for certain that's that's my opinion um something i do find interesting though is i i because i think the leftists obviously they overemphasize the importance of parenting um a lot because in their worldview, you know, nothing is genetic. Personality traits, not at all genetic. Um, you know, intelligence, not at all genetic. Work ethic, not at all genetic. So it all therefore must be entirely up to the responsibility of parents to instill all these things in their children. And that actually puts a huge burden on parents. You know, in order to be responsible, they have to like be perfect parents. Um, and it's all on them. You know, none of it is on nature so i think that actually puts a lot of people off parenting because they think oh i couldn't possibly have such responsibility yes definitely and i think that there's this aspect of not allowing children to have their own um, failures mistakes or free will and i've talked about this on my channel a couple of times but this is kind of a leftist thought pattern and you can see because they project it on other people so a family like the duggars who have the 19 kids and they're super christian as their children marry and start their own families if they deviate at all in their family structure from and rules from what their parents raised them with which is all quite well known because they're famous the the leftist media will like berate the family of like oh look see your parenting style failed because your kids are piercing their ears when you didn't allow them to pierce their ears and they kind of gloat about it and it shows that what the left thinks about parenting is it's just this you take this moldable person and you just like stamp yourself into them like it's hard as you possibly can to get them to be good little leftists and, and to be good little whatever it is, you know, good little communists, good little whatever, and to never ever deviate from your, from your um, belief structure and your principles and that if they do, as, as adults, they failed. Whereas I see a lot of conservatives and Christians, we understand that children are, have their own path they're going to make their own mistakes. And a lot of times, a lot of parents on the more conservative end say, look, I know that I can't force wisdom onto my teenage child. My teenage child has to learn things the same way I learned them. And they have their own path and they have their own free will. Free will being a big concept in Christianity. You know, God gives us free will. That's why they're suffering. Um, you know, that's why things like mass shootings happen because God has given us free will. And so we can, we can use it correctly or incorrectly. We understand that our children have that free will. And so when our children don't come out little carbon copies of us, you know, people always like to say, oh, I hope your children, you know, intermarry, you know, marry black people or marry Asians or whatever. I'm like, my children are going to have their own path. I don't expect my children to do exactly what I, they're not, they're not these little objects for me to stamp myself into. They're people and they have their own beliefs and their own values. And yes, I would love it if they had my beliefs and values because I, I consider my beliefs and values to be correct. But if they don't, they have their own path to take. And that's something that leftism, leftists don't seem to understand. And so even when they're, you know, they tend to be against things like spanking or, or other things like this, it really it really, they really betray themselves on how they view children. They view children as accessories uh, to, a, to, a, to a person, accessories to themselves and not individual human beings. Yeah, almost like science projects, you know, mm -hmm. in the way how they raise them and everything. But 
Um, okay. Did we have any questions from the chat, Mark? I know you're collecting them up. Yeah, I just wanted to respond on the spanking okay. thing. I think there's plenty of good evidence to say that spanking does work. You know, we had generations and generations of uh, Western folk who were brought up with, you know, proper discipline, corporal punishment, and discipline in the home. And it served us very, very well. It built a civilization. The more we've taken away discipline in the home, the more we've taken away the ability of a parent to discipline their child, the more chaos, the more madness, <laughs> and the more utter degeneracy has reigned. Now we get to the point where we've got children doing whatever they want, telling the parents what they're going to do, and it should be the other way around. Now, of course, if your child misbehaves, the first thing you should do is explain to your child why they've misbehaved. It should be fully explained to a child. Um, and you should, you know, sit down with them and talk to them about what they've done. But if they continue to defy you, there has to be some form of punishment. And that punishment has to be balanced with some form of reward. If a child does something that's, that's good, then a child needs to be rewarded. There needs to be some sort of measure of, you know, of, of well, of reward, <laughs> what I've just said. There has to be some way of telling the child it's done well. I used to remember as a child... If I did something really excellent at school, like if I came back and my report card was all A's, you know, my parents might take me out for a nice meal somewhere. They might might allow me to have something that I wanted. And it was like, well done, Mark. You've been rewarded because you studied hard. You know, you were disciplined. You were ordered. You did as you were told. You, you know, you went to bed on time. You passed your exams. Well done. But equally, when I was bad, when I did things that I was told not to do, there was that spectre of being spanked. And the fact is, I grew up in a disciplined home, and that's why I'm well-adjusted now. I get to work on time. I do what I'm told at work. I'm a productive member of society. And there's so many kids out there who don't have this. They only have the reward. So really, they know if they're good, they're going to get a treat or they're going to get something good. But if they do something bad... There is no actual discipline. So you're living with just the positive reinforcement. So it's like, well, I can do whatever I want because if I do something bad, I'm just going to get away with it and there's not going to be any spanking. There's not going to be any tangible punishment that I fear. But then as soon as I do something good, it's going to be reward time. And the lack of spanking is, is sort of paired with the lack of father figures in the home. The rise of the single parent family is the rise of mothers who feel this compassion, like, oh God, I couldn't spank my children. I couldn't discipline them. Oh, look, he'll cry and that'll make me feel bad. And there's no dad there to say, look, son, we told you repeatedly that if you kick the football against the house, sooner or later it was going to go through the damn window. Now it's gone through the window. You're coming in, you're going across my knee and you're getting the belt. And you know, my parents grew up in a world where there was corporal punishment in school, um, where you would get the cane or you'd get the belt. And my dad said to me, he, he took the cane on one occasion, and he said he thoroughly deserved it. He understood what he was going to get. And it built a society that was disciplined and ordered. We've taken that discipline and order away. And what have you got now? And this whole thing of children need to not have any spanking. It's just absolute liberal crap that has been, you know, developed and, and to damage society. And I'll tell you something else. The people who do push this, they really, really 
are pushing it on this really misguided thing that getting a smacked ass is literally like the worst thing ever and he's going to breed these mentally challenged children. Getting a smacked ass never hurt generations of real men. And if your child is so so mentally soft and and unbalanced that it's doing terrible things, but then having mental breakdowns when it gets a slap bum, well, I think there's some deeper problems there with your child that need to be analysed by a, you know, a psychologist. Or alternatively, you've been such a terrible parent that you know you've brought up a kid who is mentally unbalanced. But anyway, other questions. Um, this is this is a uh, a good one about bringing up children and homeschooling. Um, and this is definitely a good one for Ayla, and it's something we've discussed before, because obviously I'm a big fan of homeschooling. What are the guests' thought on, thoughts on online education for home or school in general? Have they heard or considered Coursera, Khan Academy, Udacity, or Udemy? And there's been a couple of questions about these online university courses and online tutoring. What are your thoughts on those, Ayla? Um, I think they can be really helpful as um, part of the homeschooling experience. We've definitely used Khan Academy um, a couple of times, um, particularly for my older son. And I definitely suggest if you're going to homeschool and you're going to homeschool a large family to go ahead and invest a couple hundred dollars a year in subscribing to some online academic programs. That doesn't mean you have to do the entire education of your children online, but if they could spend just an hour, uh, maybe a day doing some um, online, even if it's one of those educational video programs or something like this, it really frees you up to work with other smaller children who maybe aren't reading yet or something like that. And it's um, a tremendous time saver and it kind of compacts, um, it makes you more efficient. That's what I'm looking for. It can really make homeschooling more efficient. Um, I'm kind of a free thinker and kind of too much of a free spirit to really get locked into like where they're going to, you know, say this is this assignment and it's due this day and whatever. Like I like to be a little bit more impulsive, like especially conversations with my kids get going. We, you know, a lot of times, sometimes we'll start out with our morning scripture study and that'll start a conversation. And I'm like, Oh, you know, there, there is that type of marine animal. Let's, you know, let's look it up online. Okay. Now let's watch a documentary about it. And we kind of have this whole spiral of education that happens just organically like that. And I, I like allowing that space to happen, but then I also do like having structure. I just like creating it myself. So it kind of depends on your personality and the personality of your child. Particularly if you're only homeschooling one child, having um, something that lays things out for you and, and gives you deadlines and dates might be really, really helpful. Um, but I am a big believer in just bringing in what works, like kind of an a la carte system for homeschooling. You pick what works for your family and for that child at that time and you use it until it's not working anymore or you're done with that and then you, you pick up you know you rearrange as needed and um and not stress out too much about it but one of the things you do have to worry about some of these already prepackaged curriculums and online programs is there is a lot of liberal ideas in them even in the conservative ones you know i get a lot of um, i use a lot of Christian conservative educational curriculum and you've got to be really careful because there's a lot of anti-white uh, propaganda that you know I don't think that they're even intentionally putting in there but it's just the mindset of the culture right now and so they'll they'll put in some things like that that you have to be you know read the assignments ahead of time before your your child does and, and make sure you have discussions about those sorts of things do you find it um, a little bit difficult to get movies and things like that for your kids or do they just not watch those 
Um, it is difficult, but we kind of have a rule of thumb in our house. Like if it's, you know, made in the, you know, 1960s-ish or before, it's pretty good. And so we just, we do a lot of things. Like we'll watch a lot of old Doctor Who. We'll watch a lot of, um, you know, Little House on the Prairie, which is 1970s, but still. We'll watch a lot of um, Shirley Temple is absolutely wonderful. And I actually highly recommend Shirley Temple movies to everybody because you can get them all for free on YouTube. You can watch the whole movie. And um, watching the interaction in those movies between the families, because typically in Shirley Temple movies, there's a mom and a dad, and Shirley Temple is playing the child. And they're set in different time periods. Which, which number one, they correspond to different, you know, uh, historically um, interesting time periods for, for white American culture, which is fun. So like the Civil War, you know, places, things and times like this. But then also seeing how the family interacts with, with each other because it was still a very traditionally modeled family. And I think that men and women and children can learn so much for that being role modeled for them. So um, definitely Shirley Temple movies or movies made in the 30s and 40s are tremendous resources we also watch things like the Andy Griffith show and things like that and we do watch modern things but we're very careful so you know my, my children have not seen the new Star Wars movie um, they don't necessarily see new Disney movies that come out I'm incredibly selective about those and not just because of the content of them being you know anti-white and pro-homosexual and anti-christian but because um, I don't my kids don't need to be indoctrinated with commercialism you know so many of these new movies that come out for kids are simply you know two hour long commercials for the products they want them to buy so you know particularly when it comes to Disney and stuff like that we really limit it it's like okay Disney put out you know, 10 movies in the past two years, maybe my kids have seen one. Because, you know, I don't want, every time I go into a store, I don't want to deal with, oh, I have to have the latest princess thing. I have to have the latest this or that or or whatever. Because my, my kids don't even know what those icons and those, those cartoon, you know, figures will come from. I just, I'm selective about making it just a little bit. You know, they can have that childhood experience of watching a Disney movie, but it's carefully selected and, and they're not going to go overboard in the materialism. Okay. Um, I, I, I also wanted to add slightly change of subject, but the three of us, Mark, Steve and myself, we actually don't have any kids. So <laughs> the only parent here is Ayla. So you might want to take her a, her a little bit more serious than us. Um, Somewhere. I'm a godfather. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if that counts, really. <laughs> uh, so thank you to Quebec, who just donated $200. Love this lady. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving, all. It's important to counter the no-child propaganda. Um, okay, are we? do we have any more questions, Mark, maybe? Yeah, I don't know whether anyone else wanted to respond to that. I, I totally agree, though, about picking what your children can see. Um, and my real suggestion as well, I mean, obviously you're the mum, but, I mean, when I, um, you know, when I do buy gifts for my friends' children, I either try to buy things that are going to be, like, enlightening, or I try to buy things that are going to be very, very sort of um, gender role reinforcing. Um, and I think if I ever have children, I will buy them things that will reinforce those gender roles. I believe that boys should have, you know, 
toys that are more aggressive, that are more manly. And I believe that should be reflected in the things they watch and, you know, the way they play. I think one of the big pushes is for this sort of um, asexual, genderless sort of upbringing where children become very confused because the, the things they're watching, especially on television, I mean, I've talked about this before with like the Teletubbies, you know, these things are absolutely horrific. They're like these genderless, weird noise making, like retarded creatures, which are stupid colors, roll around, eat custard, and act in the most moronic fashion and children watch that now this is a really important thing to remember like if you talk to a child when a child is is born it's its brain is think of it like the very soft play-doh that you can make a big impression on and the older it gets the harder the, the gray matter gets the harder it is to imprint new things on it i mean if you think what you learn in your first four years of life you learn balance you learn speech, you learn to see, hear, you know, to differentiate objects. The things you learn in those first four years are actually the, the most things you'll learn in your life, really. I mean, to learn to walk is an incredible feat, and the amount of brain power that goes into walking is, is incredible. And you want to imprint on the children important things. And when you see kids listening to the Teletubbies and hearing those noises and watching those weird things, that imprints on their mind as a norm. And my big thing is read to your children. And when you talk to them, do not talk to them like they have mental issues. Talk to them as you would talk to an adult. Use full adult words. Use adult expressions. And by adult, I don't mean pornographic or anything lewd or swearing. I mean adult as in full-length adult sentences that are conjugated in a proper manner. So if you're walking around the supermarket, you know, have a conversation with your child about what you're putting in the trolley, what you're going to make with it, why you're doing things. And those, that, that verbal ability will carry over to your child. And it's very, very important, which leads me on to the next question. Oh, and this I, is some... oh sorry, can I interject just really quick? Yeah. <laughs> so my bachelor's degree is in German, so I have a background in linguistics. And I just want to say that I, I really agree with what you're saying, but I do want to interject. And, I, and the Teletubbies are awful. And I actually know children who sound like Elmo because they watch so much Elmo, they actually speak like Elmo. But baby, when, when, when a baby is about a year to a year and a half or younger, baby talking, that kind of like, coochie, 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 coo, that actually helps them differentiate between vowel and consonant sounds. And at that stage of development, that kind of baby talk can actually be really helpful. And then I think totally what you said, you should transition onto using, you know, full words conjugated correctly, you know, the, the correct verb tense and all of those, those sorts of things. When they are very little, we do have kind of that natural instinct to baby talk them. And that's actually been shown to be really good for them to, to understand the different vowel consonant blends and sounds. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there <laughs> just really quick before we move on. Well, I was just going to say, my, my, um, my friends, I'm the godfather to their son. Um, and when I go around to their house, they don't actually have a TV. Mm -hmm. They only read, they only play with natural toys, they only go out and do things. And one thing that's really interesting is if you go around, um, the little girl who's a bit older, she will come up to you, sit on the sofa, bring a book, sit at your side and just put the book on your knee to read. And she's very attentive. She'll sit there, you know, you'll turn the page. And when you'll say something like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Duck went out to buy the shopping, she'll point at the duck on the page. And it's, mm -hmm. it's really heartening to see that because I've seen so many children who literally, uh, 
you know, they, they've got a tablet in what they've got the tablet on the knee, the TV blaring in the corner, the radio in the background, the mum screeching, and their head is literally fried with sensory overload. But the things that are triggering their senses aren't things that are meaningful. It's just all garbage. But that brings me on to something really important. I'm so happy someone asked this question. I wish I'd written down who would asked it now. But um, it is a really good question. So if you're still in the chat, thank you for asking it. Um, it's about what you read to your children. And it says, do you read Aesop's fables and do you read books that promote a love of European literature to your children? Oh yeah, definitely. That's a huge thing. And we're big readers. So we're reading every morning during homeschool and then we're reading every night before bed and we're usually reading a lot in between. We've always got at least one or two family novels that we're reading through together, you know, a chapter a day and things like this. And also consequently, that's an important thing to keep up even when your kids are teenagers, to, for them to sit with you and have you read to them, um, if, if they will, and my teenager still will because he does it as part of the family, but they, they learn vocabulary and things like that through that as well. So it's not something you have to give up once they're seven or eight or, or something like this. But yes, we do read um, a lot. And um, we use the, when I'm homeschooling, I kind of use the Waldorf method as an outline for what subject matters we study during their developmental phases. And Waldorf, for people that don't know, was developed by Rudolf Steiner. He was a German um, at the turn of the 19, uh, 1900s, uh, 19th century, I should say. And he developed this kind of um, idea about, uh, you know, in, in pedagogy and instruction of children and teach, in teaching teachers how to teach. And um, I'm not a huge hardcore Waldorf or hardcore Steiner, like you have to do it, you know, knit by knit. But I do like, it's a, it's a very European thing. And so they study, for example, they start with Grimm's fairy tales in kindergarten and first grade, and then they move on to Aesop's fables in second grade. Um, they go through the Norse fairy tales in like fourth and fifth grade. They go through Greek um, things and, and, and Roman things in fifth and sixth grade. So we keep that schedule in my family as far as the um, literature that we're reading at the different age age groups for my kids. So, you know, we've been through the Grimm's fairy tales like multiple times now, um, so, you know, with, with moving every child through kindergarten and things like that. And then as far as books that we read, um, we read a lot of novels and things. And again, the way I was talking about with the movies, we do also with the books. So we try to concentrate on on older books. So things like Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, some of those old classics um, that have, you know, the, the classics, like go to the thrift shop and get them, not the remade versions. Those are really great. But even some of those books from the 80s, like Sweet Valley Twins and Babysitter's Club can actually be like really great, cute little books that are still very wholesome and kind of have that nuclear white family, <clears throat> excuse me, image and and things like that going on in the book so we'll we'll read some of those that i had in my childhood and we kind of just stick to that rule and and things that were you know written in the 1930s 40s and 50s are just going to be a lot more wholesome than books that are written today and so we we try to focus on those um for conveying family values but also the other things like grim fairy tales aesop's fables and things like that to, con to convey european culture Well, something I'd like to put into people's minds is 50s Boy Scout culture. So what was good in the 50s for Boy Scouts, if you can imbue your children with these messages, these sources, then you're going to have a lot of success. And that's reflecting on my own childhood. My father had this point of view with me. And so he raised me around old encyclopedias. He raised me around old books of poetry. 
uh, I had the Hardy Boys, uh, there's the Boxcar Children, there was uh, the old National Geographics before it became, really when it was just like a photography magazine, my grandfather won, my grandfather was a World War II vet and he won sometime in the 60s or something like this, a lifetime subscription to National Geographic. And so uh, I had uh, access to a lot of these old magazines. And at that point, it was still very anthropological and it was very photography based and they weren't pushing the agendas that they're pushing now. And so I got to see elephants, I got to see giraffes and it was without all the mumbo jumbo. And that was really useful for me. And in some ways I was raised up with a classical education, but really it had a lot to do with that 50s Boy Scout ethos. I think it was a very wholesome time for young men in Western civilization. And there was a bit of a revival of classical education and the trivium method and, you know, really learning from the great, you know, old writers in our canon. So the old stuff is great. And that's, that's one of my big suggestions to people. So. Yeah, you can even go on Amazon or one of you know bookseller, um, and you can get those old 1950s Boy Scout manuals where it takes you through what they do to earn the badges and things like that. And we use those a lot because um, you can just do those as family projects. You know, you can just say like, "Oh, let's do a family project," as though you know we were earning this this Boy Scout badge, and it gives you all kinds of ideas. And the pictures are really great, and it you know you've got young kids in there with their guns and doing their their target shooting and stuff like that and my boys absolutely love to thumb through those books as well just as you know just to soak in that imagery of what it means to be a boy and what it means to grow into a man is uh is excellent and they're like i think i've bought them before online for like a dollar i mean they're they're crazy cheap and um another thing i would say as far as books and movies and all of that is you know go to go to thrift shops because not only is it you know less expensive especially when you have lots of kids but you're going to find really great old stuff and particularly right now a lot of the people that are passing away and having all of their you know books and movies and all of their magazine collections and all of this donated to thrift shops grew up in a time and collected these things in the 50s you know 40s 50s 60s before things went crazy and you know you can sometimes go and get you know entire collections of national geographic magazine for like you know five dollars for like a hundred you know copies and things like this and old encyclopedias and things and so i use i really milk my thrift shop i always say i just milk it for every like little good treasure it's got in there another recommendation i want to make for, for you guys that are movie buffs and this is particularly for the men uh you need good examples of fathers and you need good examples of fathers in teaching roles particularly those of you who are interested in homeschooling mm -hmm. and so i'd really like to recommend there are three films one is dead poet society and that's really the thing to highlight from that is that robin williams encourages these boys to think for themselves and to look at authority and understand where authority comes from wisdom and where it just comes from violence. So that's, that's a huge recommendation. Second recommendation is the film White Squall. And White Squall is about, it has Jeff Bridges and he takes a group of young boys on a voyage through the Caribbean. And he's responsible for them. It's a boys' school. And so there are lots of lessons and a lot of camaraderie and brotherhood that's learned there. And then the third recommendation I want to make is, and I think it's it's superb, I think it's the top-notch one of the three, is the film The Man Without a Face, starring Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson takes a young boy, played by Nick Stahl, under his wing, as he's a boy without a father, his father died, and takes him under his wing to help him get into a boy's school. 
And this man, this teacher, was formerly a, a teacher at a boys' school. So it's a story of redemption for both of them. And over a summer, they bond over classical education. And so if you want some good role models and you don't have them around readily apparent, these are some, you know, these films are rich with principles and rich with the ideas that you need to be an effective father and an effective teacher. So check them out. Yeah, definitely. I think Mel Gibson, a lot of Mel Gibson's films are really excellent recommendations. Like um, Braveheart and The Patriot are two of our family favorites that are in that same vein of showing a very um, strong male leader and in Patriot in particular, a strong father figure. Um, and those, Mel Gibson really does um, some really nice work there. And then I would also uh, recommend some of the more modern Christian filmmakers that are starting to make movies. You know, they're still a little bit cheesy. Um, the acting isn't always the best, but there's uh, like a film, named, a film called Courageous, and that is about a group of men, four, I think it's about four men, and it's about them learning how to become good fathers and about responsibility in their life and about their responsibility and their duty as you know, men in their community, as well as men of God and leading their family and that 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 is their job to lead their family. And it's set against the backdrop of some of them being um, uh, police officers and firefighter rescue people. So, you know, it's got some of that. So it's, it's a fun, it's a fun story. So I highly recommend the movie Courageous. And then that film studio has also put out some other good, good things, um, you know, more modern films that have those good values in them. Great. Uh, on a different topic, what's your opinion? And this is kind of an ongoing debate in the alt-right. What's your opinion on the age at which people should get married? Well, I think that that's definitely another thing where it's going to vary from person to person because some people are honestly ready at a younger age. Um, I definitely think that your early 20s is probably... Uh, uh, roughly a good generalization for most people. Um, for, for a woman, men can, can put it off a little longer and, and maybe even should sometimes until maybe their late 20s. But definitely, I, I for most people, would not recommend um, letting your 20s pass you by without getting married um, unless you're just, you know, absolutely have not found anyone you can even stand to be around. And one of the things, too, is a lot of people emphasize finding the right person and that's, that's kind of, I think, overemphasized in our culture. There's definitely you want to find somebody who's on the same page with you and is, as far as life in general. But you're both going to change so much. I mean, every seven years, most people change a lot about themselves and about what they want out of life and about where they're going and their goals. We kind of go through these seven-year cycles as human beings. And so if you're really in it for the long haul, if you want to be married for 70 years, like Queen Elizabeth II or someone like this, you know, you're going to have to go through a lot of changes together. And my husband and I um, haven't been married nearly so long as that, but we have gone through some major life shifts together. And sometimes we were right there together when we went through them. And sometimes we were off, you know, one of us went through it first and then had to wait a few years for the other one to come around to a similar line of thinking. And, and those years are a little difficult because then we had less in common. There was the less that we could share together and we really had to work at it. There was one point when um, I had been, I guess you could say fairly red-pilled, and my husband had not yet, and, um, you know, looking at politics and things like that, demographics and had become a real big interest of mine, and it just wasn't something that even, he, you know, he was really 
had really come into his awareness fully yet. And we realized we were really drifting apart because we just had separate interests. And so, you know, my husband was actually the one that sat down one day and said, gosh, you know, we're just not really building our friendship anymore together as a couple. And we need to find something we can do together. And so we started studying Russian together. And, and it was really funny because then after we studied Russian for only a couple of months, he ended up uh, finding Jordan B. Peterson. And then kind of after that, finding the alt-right and really getting into it. And he kind of caught back up to where I am. And so now we have that in common. But for a while, you know, for a couple of years there, we were a little mismatched, but we found something we could have in common. We both decided that learning Russian sounded like fun. So we would sit and watch the videos together, get the books together. We would practice together. We'd text each other, call each other and, and practice saying, I love you or whatever in Russian. And so anyways, the point being um, that it's the age, like, don't worry about thinking, oh, I'm, I'm 22, I'm 23, I'm 24, and I really love this guy, but, you know, I'm worried that we can be together forever. It's more about your commitment to be together forever. It's, things are not always going to be perfect. You're going to go through hard times. So really, it's about, are you on the same page about life in general? Are you kind of headed in the right direction together? You both want kids. You both want a traditional, you know, somewhat traditional life. And then all those other little details, you're going to have to work out along the way. So don't find somebody who's perfect for you right now because you're going to change. Case in point, I was a vegan when I met my husband. And so he's a, he's a vegetarian and he was willing at that time to become a vegan for me. Well, I'm not a vegan anymore, but he's still, so he went back to being vegetarian, but he's still vegetarian, right? So when we have Thanksgiving dinner, we've got the turkey, but my husband isn't touching it. He's not carving it, you know, that sort of thing. And so you're, you might find the person that's so perfect for you in the moment or you think is so perfect and then you change. So don't really worry about getting married too young. I think the early, early 20s is a good generalization. And sorry, I really went off on a tangent with that one. <laughs> well, so, something I want to highlight, I'm a married man, and something I want to highlight to people is that if you can find someone who's committed to consistently learning and growing, which really ties into what you were saying, Ayla, if they're, if they're committed to learning and growing, growing up, and maturing, then you guys are going to be able to sort of keep pace with one another. And you're going to be able to see life more as an adventure rather than, you know, like kind of pulling the other person along because they're really stuck or because you have to fix them. If they're independent learners and you match up with another independent learner, and that's the whole point of homeschooling, honestly, is to, you know, sort of foment independent learning. So if you find another independent learner, the age really isn't that important just as long as you found an independent learner that you can trust. So. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of lucky. Like Corey and I just kind of magically came to the same beliefs. I'm not sure how that happened, but Hey, um, so, and we started out completely different, um, beliefs. So there you go. Um, okay. Mark, did you uh, did you want to follow up on the books talk? Yeah, I just wanted to say about the books. I, my advice for any anyone who wants to sort of bring children up properly is you want to read things like Aesop's Fables. You want to read things like Wind in the Willows. You want to read things that, again, they're based in the real world, in sort of nature. Like I remember as a child being read like Wind in the Willows. Obviously, they're anthropomorphic animals, but they are natural. And things like Aesop's fables, they live with you for the rest of your life. Stories like the ant and the grasshopper. And they have a, every one of those stories has a really, really important message to the child. And they're things that, you know, 
obviously they you know they they have this sort of moral like i remember the ant and the grasshopper because you know the grasshopper he played all summer and he didn't give a didn't get a crap that winter was coming and then he freezes to death and yeah it's quite a harsh story but you look at the ant who worked hard all summer and he put all the grain to one side and him and his family lived and all of these stories are about being modest working hard forgoing short term pleasure for long term gain and i really think esop's fables is fantastic so's wind in the willows the original winnie the pooh all of these things are are really really good but again steer away from sort of modern stories now i remember seeing something where somebody had actually reworked the ant and the grasshopper and this is how poisonous modern children's books are they'd reworked the ant and the grasshopper to being the other way round where the grasshopper who played all summer was actually the hero because in winter he was he was playing for the ants and keeping them happy when they were all depressed because they'd spent their summer working i mean what an utter load of crap and i'm not going to tell you um the name of the guy who wrote the book but or who reworked that but i'm sure in the comments you can get guess his ethnicity now as it comes for films um I can tell you this Lord of the Rings get your kids watching Lord of the Rings that's really good Angry Birds that is the best <laughs> film for children yes. watch Angry Birds and from my personal perspective if you want to watch something without some big moral message or without some sort of european overtones I remember when I was a child the sort of films I one film I remember really watching with my dad once when I was a kid was a, a Bruce Lee film called Enter the Dragon and I remember watching that and enjoying it so much because it was a film it was just such a such a guy's film it was something that I'll always remember because it was something where I really sort of bonded with my dad because it's a very sort of masculine film to watch and something that really bothers me um about what young boys end up watching is they end up watching a, a lot of feminized stuff a lot of films a lot of tv shows which have got overly feminine themes and that's a real worry for me because again i think it pushes youngsters towards um gender roles that aren't normal they're not natural um and they don't really help children to develop into either mothers or warriors or fathers and that's that's a big problem and i think you need to redefine those roles constantly for the kids and keep pushing them upon them so they actually know what they're going to grow up to be i mean when i was a kid you know i'd i'd be outside climbing trees and building rope swings and adventuring and exploring with my friends and i used to remember my sister and her friends they would stay in and they'd be with my mum and they'd be baking and they'd be um preparing you know preparing food and they'd be like oh look we bake these cookies or we bake these cakes and it was so natural and so sort of innocent but all of that is being reversed and thrown out the window and then you see the effects of it you have feminized males and you you know you have young ladies who are more masculine than the males and everything's been turned on its head and that really takes me on to the uh, next question and this is a this is a really good question it was asked early on um please don't remember to ask this one actually um because this is going to be a big thing especially for you know parents who are on the alt right who are you know awoke to the racial issues how do you teach your children to be pro white without coming right out and saying it well um i come out and say it <laughs> um <laughs> um i i mean i just tell them that um you know because they how do i explain this 
I mean, when they're very little, you don't need to come out and say anything. But as they get older, again, I, I have a teenager. And so I will just tell him, you know, if we're watching a show and there's an anti-white message or, uh, I mean, particularly given what I do, you know, on Twitter and the attention that I get, my kids are not unaware of some of it. And so it does spark family discussions around the dinner table and things like that. And we, my parent, my, my, uh, husband and I just, you know, basically will tell our kids that, you know, you're white, you're European, you, you have wonderful ancestors and a wonderful history and a wonderful culture to be proud of. And don't ever let anybody tell you any different. Um, and, uh, it was actually funny. Um, my three-year-old, uh, you know, got on about saying it's okay to be white, um, at one point recently, and it, you know, it, it's not about indoctrination, but it's just, or indoctrinizing them. It's about, uh, you know, just being honest. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in just being really honest and straightforward with children and simple. And so I will tell them like, you know, th this is what we do. This is, this is why it's important. It's important that we remember our ancestors and, and the amazing things they did. Um, my kids are also, we spend a lot of time together as a family. So my kids overhear my husband and I having conversations. And I think that's really valuable too. When your kids are kind of just you know, they're over, they're playing with the toy or they're, you know, maybe they're making origami or something, you know, doing a little craft or something. But my husband and I are having a conversation and they will then, you know, the conversation that my husband and I were having, I will hear my kids, you know, reiterate that later on, like, oh, you know, this is important because of this. And when we're going on family road trips and just, you know, we live out in the country, so it takes us a little while to get to town. When we're driving along and my husband and I are having a, a conversation and we'll bring our kids into it. Well, what do you think about this? And, you know, and again, it, you know, you don't have to talk to them about, you know, black on white or, or crime, you know, statistics or something like, you know, depressing and violent, but you can just talk to them about it. You know, it's okay to be white and, and you don't have to feel ashamed and we have a wonderful history. Does anyone else have any perspective on what they would say to their children about being white? Stephen, Tara? Well, you know, obviously people have asked me this question as well. And um, I, I personally, I don't feel there's like a lot of uh, pushing that needs to be done or brainwashing or anything. Like we're like the anti-brainwash crew. We we don't have to reinforce the message and repeat it over and over again because we're the people who are just like pro-reality. So it's I feel like it's the, the lefties and the reality deniers who are the ones who have to constantly reinforce their message and brainwash their kids and everything, you know. Uh, I completely agree. You know, I think that kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And they really observe their surroundings and they have really good observation skills um, about what is true and what isn't. And they, they certainly can, you know, I mean, something as simple as, you know, um, coming across a news story on, you know, maybe we're listening to the radio or something and they're driving to town and there's a news story about somebody doing drugs. And, you know, just kind of turning to your kid after you're, child's heard it and say, wow, does it sound like doing drugs worked out for that guy? And they'll be like, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea at all. He got arrested or, you know, whatever happened in the news story. Um, you know, and it's just kind of, they, they're not stupid. They can see that certain things have consequences and they can also see that people are different. And I, I remember when my, my oldest was very young, he was really fascinated by black people. And I was really embarrassed at first because I thought, what am I doing wrong? Oh my gosh. And I got these little books about, 
you know, racial harmony or whatever. And it, it wasn't about, he wasn't anti-black people. He just noticed them. You know, we'd be in the grocery store and he's like, wow, that woman is black. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, that's not, we're not supposed to do that in our society. And this was before I was red pilled. And then I look back on it and it's so funny because all I should have said was, yeah, she's black. Okay. You know, and move on. I mean, they noticed, they noticed that there's differences and they, they noticed that there's different outcomes. I mean, they're, they're not, they're not dumb. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you don't really have to do much because yeah, just like Tara said, you're not trying to rewrite, rewrite reality with them the way the left is. And, and you, you really nailed it on the head, Ale. I mean, children are like empiricism machines. They're just like, this is reality. This is interesting. <laughs> and the the brainwashing does come in when, you know, infants actually have a natural tendency to be, to have an aversion to people that don't share a race with them. They're scared when they're put in the presence of people that don't have the same skin color, or the same sort of features mm -hmm. that they're used to. And this, this freaks them out. And I think a lot of people look at this and go, oh my God, well, I don't want to race this child. And so let me, you know, program them differently. And you let them have their natural impulses and their, their natural sort of empiricism about the world. Then they'll see very clearly there are distinctions, very clearly there are differences and there are different outcomes. And there's, you know, intelligence weighs in a lot. And if you let them do, use their intelligence, they'll see how that, that weighs into everything as well. They'll see things very clearly. They have a real clear sense of boundaries in society and even hierarchy in society. And that's like a fun game for them. You know, we look at it and we go, oh, we, oh there's injustice. Oh, God, we need more government programs to level this all out. And but kids sort of look at this and go, oh, it's a fun game. This is interesting. All people are different. Oh, this is very interesting. So, Yeah, and I think having a large family helps as well because my kids immediately understand that socialism and communism don't work, right? They, they, they have a sense of fair play when you've got five other siblings and mom says clean the living room. They're really intently aware that they want every other sibling to do their fair share of the work if we have to clean the room before we get to go do the fun thing or whatever. And so I think that that's important too because a lot of times we have a lot smaller families now, we have one or two kids, and they don't they don't see that reality of like, hey, if you want something for a lot in life, you need to work for it and everyone needs to be working for it. Like I'm not pulling the weight for you. Like, you know, even my teenager will say about my three-year-old, like I want her to help, but I'm like, she's three you're 14 you know um but he'll say but i still want her to do something can she at least put her socks away and i'll say yes that sounds like a great learning opportunity let's teach her how to put her socks away you know but that you know so <laughs> it's also about you know having them in a big family in a, in a natural family and if you can't have a big family just having them around a lot of cousins and you know other people that they interact with in a, in a natural way and they will understand that all of these you know constructed systems that the left has decided about race not existing and communism being this great you know they will just naturally see that it's it's bunk yeah <laughs> uh, on a kind of similar topic when i was a kid i really really hated being forced to share like my toys or whatever because i was like it's mine like i should have the choice to be able to share if i want to or not i shouldn't have to share because my mom was constantly saying you have to share yeah. <laughs> um, how do you approach this do you give your children like their own toys and be like this is your property or do you say like like everyone just has to share these particular toys they don't belong to anyone they just belong to a house um how do you approach that 
Well, we do a little bit of a combination. So if they bought the toy with their own money, it's theirs and they get to decide what they do with it. And so if that means they never share it, then they never share it. Um, if it is a toy that they got for a birthday, Christmas, you know, their grandpa gave it to them or something like this, but they didn't earn it themselves, then we have a 24-hour rule. For the first 24 hours, they do not have to share that toy. But after that, they need to take turns with their siblings if their siblings would like to, to um, share in that toy. Um, and yeah, so basically, and then also we kind of, we didn't really need to develop a rule about boys and girls toys because again, it naturally kind of just happens that the girls kind of have their own set of toys, baby dolls and, you know, cooking, kitchen cooking and, and crafty sewing things that they like to do. And then the boys have their toys, which are, you know, Legos, remote control cars and things like that. And occasionally the girls like to play Legos. Um, and there's a, you know, there's the occasional overlap. My seven-year-old, so I have a seven-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, and then sometimes she can talk him into playing house, and he'll play the dad and, like, you know, do something with her with, with her dolls. But it's very rare. He's usually, like, he'll be like, okay, I'll play this for five minutes if you play soldier with me in a minute or whatever. But um, so there's there's not a huge overlap. And so there, that also helps with the, you know, having to force them to share because the girls have their room with their toys and the boys have their room with their toys. So. Talking about uh, gender identity, do you do your kids tend to um, like stick strictly with their gender identity? I remember when I was young, my brother was, you know, he really loved like wheeling around um, prams and wearing nail polish for a little part of time. I think he was actually just copying me because I was his mm -hmm. older sibling. Um, but yeah, I mean, do 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 you find that at all talking about transgenderism? That's come up in the chat quite a lot. How do you deal with that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I think that before the age of three, children are very, a little bit, um, they like to just copy, they do, they mimic. And sometimes if they have an older girl cousin, an older sibling, then a boy might play around with a little bit of girl things. And I think that the, one of the things you want to do, it's a, it's a balancing act. You don't want to make it overly taboo because later on they'll know that that's something they can trigger you with. So, for example, one of my sons at one point, it was time to buy rain boots for that year and he really wanted pink boots. I think he was three years old. And so he was three. And so I said, you know what? Fine, you can have pink boots. I'm not going to I'm not going to like make it like, oh, you can't have something that's pink and like really make this a taboo thing because then that's something that he can really get me with later and kind of play with. Um, and I didn't want to give it, give him a tool to do that if he ever decided to. And um, then one of my other children, when again, when he was about three, um, decided he really, he really loved the movie Rapunzel. And so he wanted to grow his hair out long. And he wanted to be like Rapunzel with her long hair. And so I just, you know, again, I just kind of let it go. I was like, oh, okay, okay, well, that's fine, you know. Um, we don't have to cut your hair next time it's time to cut hair. You know, you can grow it a little long. But it only got to about, I don't know, maybe like right above his shoulders. And he, like, you know, uh, decided he was he wanted to play something soldier. And so anyways, he wanted me to cut his hair really short. So they'll, they'll go through phases like that. Um, my girls are both incredibly girly, so they've not really shown a lot of interest in boy things or boy clothing or anything like that. They're really happy to wear dresses and things. But I know as a child, 
when I was very young, I did like um, Transformers and He-Man because it was, that was like really cool at the time. And I had a lot of boy playmates in my neighborhood. So um, I've, I've actually in my whole life, I've kind of gravitated towards like more things like guys do. I mean, which is why I talk about politics a lot because I kind of gravitate towards that. But um, again, it's just, I think it's, it's this tight rope, it's this balancing act of like allowing it to a certain extent not, you know, overly shaming it, making it taboo, but definitely knowing when to step in and say no. So if one of my children was to say, I want to wear a dress to, you know, uh, uh, to book club at the library or something like that, then, you know, and they're maybe five, six, seven years old, and they're a boy that I'm going to say, absolutely not, you know, and I would probably sit down with them and say, you know, boys dress this way and girls dress this way. And this is important. And it helps our society understand where everyone fits in. It makes everyone feel comfortable. And, you know, things like that, I would explain it to them. But you know, so it's working out when, when parenting a lot is about picking and choosing your battles. And kids will go through little phases like that. And a lot of times, if you just kind of let it blow past, it'll, you know, they'll be on to something else next week. I think you hit upon something really interesting there, Ayla, and that's that you, as a parent, you really are a steward of the reputation of your child. So if you parade around your child for some liberal cause, or you're permitting them to go into public places, you know, wearing dresses and these sorts of things, their reputation suffers from that. And they're going to lose esteem with their peers, and they're going to be seen, seen as outsiders, and they're going to suffer all sorts of things that are outside of their social reckoning because they really haven't left and gone into the world and been in the marketplace and developed all those skills yet. Right. So you have a real sort of primary responsibility to ensure that they can enter society as as a as a person that can contribute to society and not someone who's already you know the pooch has already been screwed by the time they're 17 and so they have to sort of go into subcultures and, right. and you know lose any sort of impact in the broader society so yeah and i do that with my ideologies as well with things about the alt-right and obviously my teenager is very aware of the alt-right and, and because of what i do and, and so forth you know and there's been times he said oh you know i want to I want to have a Twitter account. I want to call it, you know, alt-right teen or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, you are too young to decide that that is what you're doing. Like when you're an adult and if you still want to be alt-right and you want to talk about these subjects, then you can do that then. But right now you're a teenager and it's literally my job to help you not make mistakes like that that could come back to haunt you. Because I said, look, you could say something that you totally think you believe now as a 14-year-old and you might change your mind at 20, you know? And so... I, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's my job to protect you from doing that. Yeah, this is where, this is where the left really fails their children, is they, they create this fantasy world for children where there are no social consequences mm -hmm. for their choices. And so they can just sort of gallivant about and be hedonistic. And, you know, we see it at some pretty extreme ends with some of the gay pride parades, mm -hmm. but it can happen in small ways. And particularly in public school where degeneracy is pushed as cool, it's pretty easy yeah. to, you know, sort of pass your kids off into these subcultures. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they're not going to become leaders in society at a broader scale if they give in to those impulses and give in to that need to be popular. So Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah, I, I wanted to point out uh, along the same lines of what you've been saying, Steve. You know, it used to be if, if a five-year-old boy or whatever decided to wear his sister's dress to school, um, the people in the, you know, and his parents let him, <laughs> the other people in the school would be like, oh, what are you doing? And, you know, probably the boys also would make fun of him. And he would very quickly learn not to do that again. But 
now uh, children aren't even allowed to, you know, make fun of um, other children dressing up as strong gender. <laughs> so there's no like social uh, norms anymore. You're just not allowed to enforce social norms. And if anything, you know, I can see that children and their parents, you know, unfortunately, this is also a factor, they get attention for dressing like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, because there's no negative attention, there can only be positive attention as it is enforced by law, basically, in much of the West now. So it's almost um, conditioning the more kind of unfortunate people, I suppose, who don't really have a strong sense of self into into doing this to themselves and eventually mutilating themselves and screwing themselves up hormonally and not being able to reproduce and everything. So it's not it's not good, but um, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, and then they even end up using various different technologies to have children or adopt children. So that's also makes it even worse, really, because in the past, these people simply wouldn't have reproduced and then that type of personality wouldn't have got passed on. Well, I just want to add really quickly, there, and this is something Nick Fuentes talks about, and Mark, this is something you talk about in your book, is that there really is a natural order to things. And if you're encouraging your children to rebel against that and to re- rebel against the family system, which, uh, you know, um, oh boy, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with the way I just said it, but if, if you teach them to rebel against the way civilization is propagated, mm-hmm then they will fail civilization and their reputation will suffer and they'll be socially ostracized whether what regardless of the incentives that the welfare state or the government system sets up if they rebel against that natural order you could say god's order or the natural order they're going to suffer for that so just something i want to add briefly and i know mark you wanted to say something and just a little segue there so no no i was just going to add um specifically about we obviously started this about the race and how you teach your kids about race i always found this wasn't going to be really an issue i mean i don't have children but when i talk to people about race and i do all the time i'm very forthwith about things if i spend an hour having coffee with someone um, and they make mention of something i just connect the dots in a simple way and i remember i i know what it's like to be around you know younger people you know some of my friends have got children and it's quite easy to connect things for people if you do it in a simple way and if you think about we've talked about red pilling normies well how do you red pill children well if a child says oh it's 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 awfully crowded here why are there so many people mummy well we've let immigration get out of control and too many people because the government let them into our country um and all of that kind of stuff is very easy to do and often children will marvel at things and i remember when i was a kid i used to love um knights and i used to love castles and if we went on a trip to a castle or something like that and obviously you guys in america you don't really have any culture so, you know people are gonna hate me for this but we have like these beautiful castles and they're like hundreds if not thousands of years old in europe and you go to one of these places and like i used to love lego when you're talking about lego I've got an amazing Lego collection I've had since I was a kid, and I've still got my Lego castle, the original 1980s one. I used to love knights and castles and European history. And as a child, that was really inspiring. Um, But it's very easy for a child that's inspired by that to to join the dots um, and to basically say, this is part of your culture. This is part of your history. This is your ancestry. And I think you can really draw children in with that. I think it's very, very easy to bring um, 
kids in line with the racial or with the ethnic line simply by relating it to things that they admire and they take um, some form of uh, inspiration from. So, you know, if your child loves Lego castles, and, and things were quite European when I was a child. I mean, I was a massive fan of He-Man. And even if you look back at, you know, fantasy stuff like He-Man, who was He-Man? Well, he was a big, strong, masculine guy with a sword who rode a steed. I know it was a giant cat, but it was still a steed of sorts. He lived in a castle, Castle Grayskull. And there was so much European kind of influence to that. It's very easy to connect that with children. So if, you know, it's the same with things like when, when we got a bit older, I mean, I know some of you might balk at this, but my parents were actually quite sort of um, liberal in not letting me watch anything that was sort of like explicitly pornographic or horror or scary, but stuff that was quite violent, but still a little bit too old for me. They didn't mind me watching stuff like Conan the Barbarian or Robocop, but stuff like Conan the Barbarian was distinctly European. The idea of this, um, you know, hyperborean uh, warrior who, you know, went out on his horse and had adventures. It's very much a bit like adult Lord of the Rings type stuff. I think it's very easy for children to relate that to the idea of race and to the idea of, you know, European culture. So I would definitely do that. And the other thing we were talking about, that I just want to add a small bit of perspective on, is shame used to be so important to us as children and shame kept us in line. And you should employ that shame with your children because in the schoolyard, we used to have shame. If you turned up to school um, and you were smelly or you were fat or you were odd or, you know, if you, God forbid, if you decided you were going to turn up in your sister's dress, no one ever did that at my school, but if they had, they'd have been thrashed. You know, the kids in the playground would have policed that rubbish, you know, and it kept people in line. You know, a child wouldn't want to turn up to school scruffy or smelly or, or overweight or behaving in a way that was feminine or untowards because the other children would have held that child in line simply with shaming. You would have been called names. Now, I know that sounds cruel, but, but nature's cruel. Late, nature isn't all fluffy bunnies and sort of like everything getting on and holding hands. And I genuinely do believe that, I'm not talking about bullying, but generally group consensus amongst young people did keep young boys in line and it did push them towards being tougher. You know, you wanted to be one of the boys. You wanted to have your group say, yeah, you're doing the right thing. You wanted to be part of that. And part of that was being masculine, being strongest. I mean, there was the tendency that the young boy who was the first to climb the tree or the first to test the rope swing or the first to jump across the river, he was the hero to his friends. And it makes me actually quite sad and I find it quite disturbing that now young boys would tolerate one of their friends turning up to school in his sister's dress, and he would get some kind of group applause for that. And I do think there's been a very, very worrying shift towards young boys not policing each other and not pushing each other forward to be more masculine and more strong and to actually embrace sort of a braver and more manly type of behavior. I, you know, I know this is a slight digression, but what's your thoughts on shaming and what are your thoughts on, you know, bringing up kids knowing that, you know, shame could be a useful tool in ensuring that they learn proper gender boundaries and also boundaries for acceptable behavior, because that does exist in the adult world too. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. And I think that there's a difference between shaming bad behavior and being cruel to a child, right? And we, we have to definitely um, say that there's, there's a difference there. But um, one of the things that I am, am really sad about in regards to homeschooling is my kids don't get that experience, you know, um, that they could have got on the playground of having to learn those rules because I think that it's valuable. And, and basically because schools have become the opposite, like you said, if a child shows up now in a dress, they're going to, you know, the children will be forced to applause it. And, you know, the teacher is going to give the, the transgender child, you know, an extra sticker or whatever it is. And so it's, it's become the opposite of that. But I, I really wish that there was some kind of little magical land that I could move to with my family where schools were like they were in the 1950s or even in the 1980s when we were growing up because um, I really think that that, that um, culture of having their, their peers reject an idea or a rejected a thing that they're doing is so much stronger than your parents because we all know that we kind of get to an age where we all kind of poo-poo our parents ideas at least for a while you know between ages about 15 and 25 a lot of us kind of go oh mom and dad have no, no idea what they're talking about anyway but we we kind of do react very strongly to to our peers and to what they're saying and so i think that that is with the left having targeted schools as one of the first places that they brought their poison into our society, you know, we, we've been at the disadvantage in that respect. But my husband has a, he's a, he's very funny. He has a way of doing it. Our family, he says, well, they don't have any school bullies, so I have to be the bully. And not in a mean way, but he will just do the good amount of teasing with them. You know, he will tease them. He will wrestle with them. He will poke at them. So for example, my seven-year-old recently was having a meltdown in the back of the car because his five-year-old sister was telling him that he goes to Girl Scouts. She says, you go to Girl Scouts. He goes, I don't go to Girl Scouts. You know, but she's just teasing him. But he's having a complete meltdown. And as a mother, I was like, oh, well, isn't it nice that he's defending his masculine identity? And my husband goes, no, because he's doing it in a whiny, unmasculine way. And I went, oh, I didn't even see that. So we got home and my husband just teased him about it to no end until my, my seven-year-old realized, oh yeah, you know, breaking down and having a crying hysterical fit over her challenging my masculinity wasn't a masculine thing to do. And so I think that when we're talking about fatherhood in particular, it's so crucial right now that dads keep that jovial, good-natured, but, you know, where they, where they give their kids the business, where they kind of rib on them and wrestle with them and tease them. And I think that that's really healthy, particularly between father and son. And father and daughter is a little bit different of a relationship. But between father and son, it's absolutely crucial. And one of the things, and the left I've seen recently has been targeting that behavior as well. So we saw originally dads in, you know, television shows and books and things, when they started becoming leftist, dad became, became a buffoon and an idiot who didn't know what he was doing, if there was a dad at all, in the storylines. And now we see, now definitely there's some very negative things on YouTube as far as children go, but some of these these channels where, I know I saw this recently where a dad had, his daughters were playing in the bathtub, but they had bathing suits on, so everything was modest. And he just threw a frog in the bathtub with the girls. And I think they were like eight and seven or something like this. And one of them was like, oh, I don't like that. But one of them was hysterical. She was, she got up on the edge and was like, ah, 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 daddy, daddy, help me. And he's laughing and he scoops it out and he puts it in the bucket and then he brings it in the bucket to see, see, it's just a frog. And she calms down and calms down. 
Well, this was taken down by YouTube as a violation because they said that he was like psychologically torturing his children by doing this. And in the article that I read, they had the video, you know, you can see the video if you want. And it said, caution, this, this imagery may be disturbing to some viewers. And I'm like, a dad teasing his daughters with a frog is disturbing? I mean, this is literally like iconic in our culture where, you know, little boys used to put frogs in girls' lunch pails or, you know, pull on their, their braids at school or whatever. This kind of teasing jovial behavior, this masculine behavior was, was iconic. And now it's suddenly actually abusive. And I think it's so ironic that the same people that are pushing for pedophilia acceptance are then saying something like a dad putting a frog in the bathtub and making his little girl squeal is abusive. It it's just blows my mind. I, the, there's no consistency on the left, that's for sure. Well, it was something I wanted to bring up with you, and uh, I think it's probably useful for a lot of people to hear, is that socially we're sort of like on a trajectory given our family histories and our family backgrounds and our, our breeding, you know, our genetics and this sort of thing. And something that my father really empowered me with and steeped me in as a child were the stories of the people in our family and, you know, what the, the lessons were that these people learned and the, the things that they went through and, you know, how these choices affected their lives. And I just wonder how much you and your approach with your children tell them the stories of their, say, say an uncle or their grandfather on, you know, either side or just different people. How much you sort of relate to them, what these people went through? Oh, constantly, like daily. We we discuss that daily. In fact, today we actually went and visited some graves, um, graves from uh, family members. Um, as something to do after Thanksgiving and I said you know this is this person and I explained to them who they were and you know who they were to me and we sat at the grave and I, I said you know I remember this relative when I was a little girl you know he and she would always do this they always had this in their cupboard or they every time we go to their house they would cook this for us to eat you know this is what they did for a living this is what you know um, and my dad um, my dad's visiting us for, for Thanksgiving. And so, you know, I always take advantage of those opportunities. And I say, you know, dad, tell my kids the story of, you know, when you and your brother went fishing at this Creek or, you know, th these sorts of things. And, and I'll also record them when I'm, when I'm hanging out with older aunts and uncles. And, um, you know, I have a grandmother that's still alive and, and with my mom and, and or dad or people like this, I'll take my iPad and I'll just hit record and I'll have conversations with them about, you know, what did they do? And, and I do that even when, when people in our family marry other people. So they're not our blood relations, but they've married into our family. One of the first things I'll do is we'll, we'll sit in our living rooms and I'll say, I want to get to know you, like your whole family, like where are your people from? What's your history? You know, do you know how your ancestors came to America? Do you know, you know, what, what religion were you raised? You know, what, what did your dad do for a living? What did your grandfather do for a living? And I, I'm really big about cataloging those stories, writing them down. Um, in fact, my husband and I learned uh, just today that, that my, my step-grandfather, who died right before I was born, actually has had the exact same uh, job that my husband had for a, a long time and we had no idea because my dad had just hadn't brought it up before He's like, oh, yeah, he did he did that too and we're like what and, and he had even gone They'd even gone to the same university at one point like all of these synchronicities and I thought oh my gosh That's really incredible. Um, and, and just things like this and so I always like to you know, write those down in my journal, keep those pictures. Um, if I go over to a relatives house and they've got some older pictures I'll just get out my phone, you know, and I actually 
purposely got a phone that has a pretty nice camera so that I could do this snap pictures of those old pictures and you know keep the to keep a digital you know print them out um, we tell stories all the time and and yeah daily really literally daily <laughs> I just want to respond to the frog comment I mean I, I find this really 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 irritating because like when we were kids you know uh, my dad would sometimes come in and, you know, he'd have found something in the garden, like a, you know, like a mouse or something like that. And he'd want to show us. And there would, you know, there was a certain degree of teasing. And the, the thing that really, really angers me about the left is the way that if you push your child's boundaries in any healthy manner, for example, if you're, you know, I, I remember as a kid, I go into the park with my mum and dad and I was a bit scared to go down the big slide and my dad would be like, you can do it, son. Stop being a, you're not a girl, get down it. And then you'd go down and be like, oh, thanks, dad, I did it. And like, if you do that, you're now like virtually a terror to your child. But if you endorse your child, you know, wearing a tutu and ultimately going ahead to cut his own penis off, you're a hero. And when you see stuff like that, you know society is completely upside down. Well, we've got a um, a question that's been asked for uh, from someone, and this is this is slightly different. And after that, we've got one more question for you—a really good question, actually. If we've got time, um, somebody said, "I'm centre left on most issues, aside from immigration, on which he is far right. I'm against our demographic replacement for keeping white majorities in the West." Is there room for people like me in the movement? So what do people think to that? Let's hear Ayla's opinion first. Well, I'm always, and I get in trouble for this for some of the more radical people, but I'm a pretty big tent kind of person. And I am really um, happy to work with people when we only share a few values in common. And if we can work towards some common goals, I think some, some is better than nothing. And I think though, um, a lot of people in the movement in the, the alt-right or things like this still have very, um, classically liberal ideas on a lot of things, even things like homosexuality. Now I'm a Christian and I don't think that it's healthy. I don't think it's good. I don't think homosexuality should be promoted in our culture at all, but I'm not wanting to police what police, what goes on in people's bedrooms. And if you want to go back to where, you know, we had characters such as Oscar Wilde on the fringes of our society doing what they do, I'm certainly not for throwing them in jail over it. And so I think that a lot of us, you know, are quite um, either classically liberal or almost libertarian in our views on what people do in the privacy of their own homes. We just want to uphold a healthy cultural standard for the majority of, of people. And so um, I think that he would probably find uh, this person or this person, he or she would probably find a lot of camaraderie in our movement for some of their, their more um, liberal ideas. I think that we have a, a fairly wide variety of people, um, especially where they come down on, on social issues like that. And I think that um, the immigration issue is overwhelmingly the number one, one, the number one issue that we're facing right now. I mean, that you know, we're, we can sit here and talk about parenting all we want, but if we don't close our borders and, and return our countries to, um, to having ethnic sovereignty over themselves, then we're not going to be, you know, all of this parenting philosophy is going to be nothing because there, there is going to be no more white people. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's the biggest issue. So if you agree on that, I think that there, there is room. But like I said, I'm a big tent kind of person. 
Yeah, and maybe this person isn't aware that we also have this thing called the old light, which is for people who who aren't quite old, right? You know, and they just like to kind of ha maybe have their own views. And we, not everyone shares exactly the same views. In fact, uh, we have quite a lot of variety in perspectives. Mm -hmm. And when I surveyed my audience, most people were formerly libertarian turned old, right? Um, I think because as as Way for Purpose was just saying, you know, it's like we realized we couldn't really do the libertarian thing with open borders. So it's the other views you have aren't as important as being anti-immigration. We can we can pretty much get along with anyone who wants to close the borders. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are our allies. Do you have uh, anything to add on this, Steve? Yeah, I just I just agree. Um... I think the succession is you have to drain the swamp so that you can free up the minds of the people so that you can get a Republican supermajority so that you can close off immigration. Mm. So anyone that wants to drain the swamp, I, I just have nothing but f support for. Even if I have massive disagreements on philosophy, I see a lot of that as abstractions. So a lot of people, you know, oh, paganism or Christianity, what do you think, Stephen? Get a dog in this fight. I don't, you know, it's like it's an abstraction. I, I want to get our Republican supermajority. I want to crush the swamp. I want to crush the fake news so that then we can get that Republican supermajority. Hey, and guess what happens when we get this, the Republican supermajority? We can rewrite the Constitution. Ooh, that sounds juicy. But it's a it's a sort of order of succession. And so, you know, that's that's how I see things. That's my standpoint at this stage. Well, I think people are going to be actually shocked by what I've got to say here, because I think people expect me always to say the harshest things or the most forthright. Um, and it was really weird that guys asked this question because one of my friends rang me today and actually she asked me, what do I think are the prerequisites for somebody to stand alongside me in this uh, sort of conflict? And I've got to say that, number one, if somebody is fully committed to the preservation of our people, that's the first. Secondly, someone has to be committed to ending immigration. And the third, they have to be fully committed to the preservation of our culture, heritage, and traditions. So if they're willing to stand with me to defend those of European descent, cut off any further immigration, defend our culture, heritage, and ways of life, and ensure that that goes forward and carries on as it has done, I think, yeah, we can build a big tent. The things that cut people off to me is, number one, if people are not committed to that race realism, and if they're not committed to any form of race realism, well, that starts to annoy me. And the second thing is if people punch right and cook out. Because if people don't agree with me 100%, and there's plenty of people I don't agree with 100%, don't attack me. And we've said this before on the show, we have never attacked anyone on this show who hasn't aimed fire at the alt-right or aimed fire at people on this panel, because we're, we're pretty much a live and let live bunch. So this fella, he might not agree with us on everything, but if he is committed to helping us ensure that the white race, those of European descent, survive and continue, then get in the tent, mate, because the fact is we don't have a huge amount of time, we don't have huge numbers, and we don't have huge resources. And if people are com you know, committed, fully committed, to keeping us alive and keeping us going, I'm not going to boot them out of the tent. We need all on board. And that also goes for people who aren't 
of European descent. If people come to me and they say, look, you know, I happen to be of African descent, but I am 100% committed to making sure you Europeans survive because you make the world a better place for us all, then boom, you can stand alongside me any day of the week. And that's being pragmatic because I'm not here for posturing. I'm here to win because winning is all that matters. So we've got time for one last question. And this is a really good one. That, that, yeah, I, I agree with you. And um, pretty much anyone who stands by our values can can be part of it. And it's um, it's purity spiraling is just a weakness. You know, when you're look when you're picking people apart and being like, oh, you're not perfect enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that's never going to get us anywhere. So we we really need to work with anyone who's like willing to ally with us in a serious way. Okay, well, we've got, yeah, well, I, I obviously completely agree. And I, I think we all agree with this on the panel. And we, as I said, we make a point of not attacking anyone unless they have come out and literally attacked us or cooked on the whole movement. And I think we have built a wonderful alliance of some of the best and the brightest people on the alt-right you know and it's great to have Ayla here as part of that you know you're you're now part of the white power rangers you get your badge at the end of the show um sort of one final question (laughs) one final question um and this this is slightly personal but it's it's i think this is important um how can you afford having many children and what do you think about claiming welfare is it better to be independent or to use what you can get to your benefit to facilitate a crash it's i think it's better to um start out independent and have the goal of being independent but understand that if your family goes through a hard time your husband loses his job there's a death there's an illness things like that if there is aid that you can use go ahead and don't feel ashamed of using it because a lot of other people are using it to build up their people and their culture to to run roughshod over us so don't be ashamed um, to use it again it's like all things there there's a balance there don't go into your life saying i'm going to have six kids because i'm going to raise them on welfare obviously i don't think that that that's a good way to go about it um go into it with a plan of being independent be as independent as often and as long as you can but don't feel overly ashamed that if something is to come up that you go ahead and take use the support that's offered to all people in our country and that other people are using in an unashamed manner. Now, as far as affording six kids, kids are actually not quite as expensive as people think, um, as well as you just you have to be committed to um, living a simple lifestyle. My husband and I both were big believers. This is part of being on the same page. Then when we're talking about getting married um, earlier and about what age you should, This is one thing you want to be on the same page with. You're going to have a very difficult time of it if you have a husband that loves a really extravagant lifestyle and a wife that loves a simple lifestyle or vice versa. It's usually vice versa. Um, If you're both wanting the same sort of lifestyle, um, and particularly with kids, a simple, a more simple lifestyle, you don't need to go on ski vacations every year. You don't need to go to Disneyland every year and these sorts of things. 
then you're going to be able to do this more successfully if you're both committed to knowing that your children are the most important thing and that you know everything else can be secondary so you know my husband's always wanted to tour around asia he thinks asian culture is really interesting he always hoped by the, by the time that he was 30 he would have toured toured around asia well by the time he was 30 he was the dad of five children instead you know so it's a trade-off and so um, I would say my biggest tips are um, to don't go into debt. That's the biggest thing. Do not go into debt. Don't take out student loans if you can help it. And don't take out even a loan for a home if you can help it. If you can wait to purchase your first home, you know, cash, and do it, you know, maybe when you're, you're 30 or 35 instead of doing it when you're 20, I highly recommend it. Um, don't be afraid to live in a small home. Don't be afraid to start out maybe purchasing a condo for, you know, 50 or $70,000 and then working your way up to a house later on. That's the way our ancestors did it. You know, a lot of people started out in apartments and they'd have two, three, four kids in an apartment and then move into a townhome. And then finally, you know, when their older kids were teenagers, they'd finally move into that, that home with the white picket fence that everyone dreams of having. Don't be afraid to do it that way. Don't be afraid to do it slow to avoid debt because debt will absolutely crush and kill you. Um, the only uh, the other huge um, expense with children, um, having a lot of children, is healthcare. And in that respect, if you you know if you can plan ahead, if you want to have a lot of kids, try to plan for a career that typically comes with fairly good health benefits for people who are in America. If you don't have that opportunity or or something changes. As far as healthcare goes, um, cash pay is actually a lot cheaper than having insurance in America right now. Um, you know, my family could li like literally somebody in my family could get cancer, and we could pay for it all cash, and it would be cheaper than taking out a private insurance policy <clears throat> on each member of my family. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so I recommend really doing your research there. Finding a doctor, a family doctor that does cash pay, um, things like that can really keep your costs down um, in, in that respect. And then if you've got the space, grow some of your own food and buy in bulk. We, we love to use um, companies like Azure Standard here in America. They sell bulk things. You, you order it online and then you go pick it up from your drop spot. So we'll get 50-pound bags of lentils, 50-pound bags of black beans, you know, rice, things like that. As I said before, my husband's a vegetarian, so we don't eat a lot of meat. I'll make meat for the kids and I maybe once or twice a week. Other than that, we're eating a lot of rice and beans. And I'm really thankful that my kids actually really love rice and beans. And that's one of the things about food, too. People always think that you've got to, like, fix some kind of fancy pizza, chicken nugget stuff for your kids. Most kids, they're, they're fine with, with what you feed them as long as you don't disparage it. As long as you're like, oh, we're having rice and beans. If you're like, we're having rice and beans, they're like, rice and beans, yay. Um, they really pick up on your cues a lot of times. So I guess those are my, my best, my best tips. <laughs> oh, I really like your stay out of debt philosophy. I think that's a great one. I think it's, you know, debt's like an epidemic in the West, just like obesity and everything else like that. It's just one of these things that's like really, um, unhealthy psychologically. And it, I think it really keeps people down. So I recommend Dave Ramsey. He's I think he gives some really good tips on getting out of debt, staying out of debt, how to buy a house without getting in debt, etc. So uh, definitely check him out. Um, I find it really funny actually when I see um, parents. Uh, I'm not criticizing, but 
because if they want to do it, it's fine. But when I see adults like feeding children like children food <laughs> and the adults having adult food, because I, I never had that when I was a kid. It was like yeah. you just have what the adults are having. <laughs> That's it. So, yeah, uh, let's hear from Steve. We haven't heard from you for a while. Have you got anything to say? We're just wrapping up now. Well, basic thing you learn in teaching when they, you know, I went to teacher's college and got a degree in that. I got a master's degree. And they, one of the first things they teach you is modeling. Modeling is the, it's very basic, right? It's, you got to lead by examples. You know, but they, they call it modeling to take the moral component out of it. They don't want you, know, they, they want you calling it leading by example because that's, you know, it gets subversive. So you have to call it modeling, which is very psychological. But, uh, you know, my kids are going to see that I like rice and beans and I like eggs and I like spinach. And then I like going for long walks with my wife and conversing. And that right there, walking, you know, keeping active and not just sitting in one place for long periods of time and having a diet that gives you sufficient nutrients are massively preventative in, in healthcare concerns. So, you know, if you're sort of showing this to your children, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So that's my basic thought on that. Is you really want to set a good example? Yeah, I'd say what the really important thing that I would take from this this last question is that people make a big, big sort of fuss about how much money children need, and it's a very, very sad um, way to look at bringing up children. You know, people measure a child's happiness in things such as holidays to Disneyland, like you said, or, um, you know, extortionate gifts. And a lot of this is driven by uh, the internationalists who own the media and pump out crap like My Sweet 16 on MTV. And you get this idea, this warped idea, that your daughter can only be happy if her birthday gift is a brand new Ferrari, you know, or your, your son can only be happy if his, you know, his 18th birthday you know, begins with him being delivered a brand new yacht full of beautiful women in, in their bikinis and he walks out onto there and, you know, on the yacht there's then the Rolex that he unwraps and everyone's cheering and popping champagne corks. But that's a very false view and it's one that puts people off breeding because people then think children are super expensive and they cost loads of money. Well, I can say this, when I was a, when I was a child, some of my happiest memories weren't doing anything that really cost a lot of money. They were doing things like finding an old piece of rope in the garage and taking it down to the woods and chucking it over a tree and building a rope swing or, you know, finding, walking down by the river and finding a bashed up old boat, which obviously had a huge hole in it and wasn't going to float, but you'd spend a good two, three, four, five days of your summer holiday trying to patch it up and convincing your friends that it was definitely going to float, only for you to put it on the pond and it'd sink immediately with all five of you in it and you'd get soaking wet and you'd go home and your mum would scream because your new trainers would be waterlogged. But it was all part of really happy memories. And those happy memories weren't monetary memories. Memories. They weren't things where like your mum had gone out and buy, bought you a 500 pound designer jacket so she would be the coolest mum at the school. Those things don't make kids happy. What makes kids happy are genuine memories. And these kids who get bought all this stuff, they end up not knowing the value of money and being deeply unhappy and having the wrong um the wrong goals in life. And I know women, I know women who say things like, oh, I'd only marry a man who can afford to buy my kids designer. When I have my kids, you know, and he's a toddler, he's going to be wearing Nike Air Jordans. You look at them and think, 
is that really good for a kid? Is that really going to enhance his life? No. And I do genuinely believe that the happiest children that I know, my friends who've got the happiest children, are the ones that live the most natural lives and have the most love. And on the thing of taking money from the state to assist you having kids, my answer is emphatically yes. The state is our enemy. These people aim to bring about white genocide. So if you can take the state's money and use it to pump out white children, do it. Because believe me, every other race is taking that money to pump out their children. So why shouldn't we play the system as well? And believe me, I pay tax every month. And when I see that tax bill come out, it always sends a little bit of a shudder down my spine. And if I know that there's white families using that money to pump out white children and reverse the demographic change, at least I know my tax money isn't being completely wasted on crap PC schemes and bringing in immigrants and allowing non-whites to outbreed us. So definitely use the state's money and definitely Focus on the right things in life, the things that are going to make the kids happy. And if you think the only way that your children will be happy is if you can take them to Disneyland or put them in Nike Air Max trainers, then maybe consider that you haven't instilled the right virtues or any virtues for that matter in your children. So I just want to say we're coming up to two hours. And Ailey, you've been an absolutely fantastic guest. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I think your tips on parenting have been absolutely priceless and you really are sort of a model mother and a, uh, you know, a great role model to young females. So is there anything you'd like to sum up with or do you have any final comments that you would like to give to the audience or any sort of morals or mottos that you live by? Oh, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you first for your praise. I appreciate that. And I enjoyed being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I would say that, um, you know, your happiness in life is um, just as it's not determined by the things that your children have, as you were just saying, giving them more stuff isn't going to make them happy. You having more stuff as an adult isn't going to make you more happy, but having children will make you happy. And um, in my family, for generations, they had very small fam families. I was the rogue one who stepped out and had a large family. And now that some of those those that would that scoffed at me ten years ago see how genuinely happy I am, how well behaved my children are, what a delight they are to to me and to our whole family, they've all all of them just about reversed their position and and understand the value of what I did. So I think that even if people don't understand you now, if people give you a hard time, if your family gives you a hard time, do what you know is right be happy. Those people will probably come around and probably honestly thank you later for having a big family and bringing such life and vitality and happiness into your family at large and into your community. And you will, you will never regret having a child. You will almost always regret it if you do not have a child. And so a lot of times people will say, oh, well, we have three kids. Should we have four? I say you will never regret having that fourth, so why not? <laughs> yeah, um, I think as JF, the the biologist from Quebec, points out, like the, all these people who think it's trendy right now not to have kids, they're going to go extinct, and <laughs> the people with the genes that like having kids are going to 
Viva Future. So that's just how it works if you look at it from that perspective. Um, We've actually gone a little bit over time, so I'll just wrap up quite quickly here. Thanks to everyone for um, watching and listening to the show today. Obviously, you can find more from Wife of a Purpose on YouTube and Twitter. Just search for her name and you'll find it. And yeah, we'll catch you guys um, on the next show. Same place, same time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.